This sermon was recorded at Highway San Jose in San Jose, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Thank you, Kevin. Yes. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. My name is Seth. For those of you who don't know me, I'm on staff here with Highway San Jose, and it is good to be with you this evening. Uh, Tonight, we are putting a pause on our Galatians teaching series, and it's going to give me an opportunity to share with you a message that I'm really passionate about, I got to tell you, and uh, I hope that it is something that resonates with you as well, and it has to do with the day that we have planned coming up here, a really special one on uh, this Saturday, May uh, 14th. It's called City Dive. And the idea behind it is that we're going to dive into the realities of San Jose and we're going to learn about some of its most pressing issues. Um, uh, Families facing poverty, chiefly among them. There's an article that came out a couple of of months ago from CNN. And it talked about how the Silicon Valley has become really a tale of two valleys. One in which there's all this advancement and innovation and wealth being created. And then on the other hand, there are families that are just really struggling. Uh, There are families that are homeless in our city. There are children that are being left behind. Um, It is a reality that we tend not to see. And so the day is designed for you to learn about the needs of our city and also to challenge and inspire you to get involved. Um, Because in the midst of all this brokenness and all this pain and all this struggle that we're going to learn about on Saturday, God is really doing something about it. There is hope for uh, the city, and so we're going to hear about that too. So the day shapes up this way. Um, on Saturday, we're going to visit this organization called Sacred Heart Community Service. It's not too far from here, Alma and First Street, um, not too far. And it's been founded, it was founded 50 years ago by this woman named Louise Benson. And um, it's this really humble beginning. She wanted to feed families out of, her, out of her home, families in the neighborhood. And so over time, it's grown, over the decades, it's grown to become one of the largest organizations in San Jose offering one of the most comprehensive approaches to fighting poverty in all of the city, with a real emphasis on engaging with working poor families, primarily Latino families in the surrounding area. And what's so compelling about Sacred Heart is that behind everything they do, there is this mission and there is this deep, deep desire to empower people and to affirm people's dignity through empowerment. it, it really permeates everything that they do. They have educational classes for adults, uh, after-school club for kids, computer literacy classes, financial literacy, English as a second language classes. Um, they have help with people um, who need help with their resume. They have help with people who are looking for uh, jobs in the area. They have housing and immigration assistance. They have help with families who want to start organic gardens because that's a good thing. So they do that as well. And even their emergency resources which is a food pantry and a clothes closet, which can often, in the way they're set up, dehumanize people, actually. Um, It's set up to affirm people's dignity, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So Sacred Heart, it's it's a really good organization for our church to partner with um, because the mission is a good one and because they have so many ways for us to engage. So there's gonna be two parts to today. Part one, we're gonna meet there in the morning, 9.30, um, see the facility, hear about the organization, learn about the needs and the, the families in the surrounding area, learn about ways that we can engage uh, with them. And then we're going to have lunch there. And the lunch is going to be kind of special because we're going to make lunch from the stuff that they have in their food pantry. So that should be a good, yeah, that's going to be interesting for us. Second part of the day begins at about 1 o'clock. We're going to take a walking tour of downtown. 
It's going to be led by someone who was formerly homeless, who works with Sacred Heart doing these types of events. Um, he's going to walk us through some services downtown that are addressing homeless, um, homeless needs for families and for people who are on the verge of homelessness. And then we're going to finish up at St. James Park, which um, often gathers a large homeless community there. He's going to share her, his story with us. And then there's going to be time for some Q&A. Um, so 930 to, 1, 9.30 to 3 o'clock, it's a long day. I know this. I know this. Um, it's a good one, but a long day. And so come to whatever part that you can. I would hope that you come, come to everything. That would be wonderful. But try and make whatever part of the day you can. And kids, by the way, are welcome. Um, for mi kids middle school and above, they can hang with the adults for the whole time. For the younger kids, we'll have child care there at Sacred Heart, which will include a lesson that will connect with some of the stuff that the, the adults are learning. Um, and there's an insert in your bulletin if you'd like to register. Um, insert in your bulletin. You can fill, fill that out and drop that off in the offering bag, which is going to come around at the uh, end of service. If you, don't, if you can't register today, there's a link in there that you can register to do it. You can do it online. Got it? All right. Well, that, that is the what of, of uh, City Dive. So I want to spend the rest of my time talking about the why. The why do we do it? What's it all about? What's the philosophy of it? So City Dive is structured to be unique. Because it's about stories and not service. It's about stories and not service. There are plenty of churches in the area that have service days or beautification days where people go and they paint a school or they go and clean up a neighborhood or they go and build something. Um, and they may, that has its place, but City Dive is not that. It is not that. Instead, City Dive is really focused on learning about struggle, on hearing stories about struggle, on hearing stories about what families are going through. Families that live right next to this church, right in this neighborhood, quite frankly. We're gonna hear about that. Um, so we wanna spend uh, the rest of our time tonight talking about why that is. Why are stories so important? Why, for City Dive, do we start there and not with service? And it has to do with what it means to love your neighbor. Not what we think it means, but what it really means. And it's really crucial for us to get to the bottom of that. It's really crucial for us to ask that question, particularly with this church here as we're setting roots down, we're a new church, right? Right next to, again, a neighborhood that's struggling, right down the street from an elementary school where kids are struggling. What does it mean for us to love our neighbor? Where do we start? Right? How do we do it? And well, the key to it all comes uh, from this very familiar story that Jesus told not, well, a long time ago, yes. Uh, you might have heard of it, yes. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you may, you may know this parable, chapter and verse. You may know it backwards and forwards. But there's a question at the very end of that story, that little episode with Jesus, where he asks a certain kind of question that really gets to the heart of the matter what it means to love our neighbor. And it's something that we tend to miss. So I want to look at that with you uh, this evening. Let's turn to that now. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10 beginning at verse 25. There's some Bibles in the front here if you need some. There's words up here on the screen. And it starts like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so 
he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him, in, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, often, uh, this parable is taken as a lesson on who is my neighbor. In other words, who should I love? That seems to be the question that the lawyer is asking. And Jesus seems to be saying, well, it's the person furthest away from you, socially speaking. It's the, it's the most unlikely person. It's the person that you tend to ignore. It's even your enemy. So in other words, everyone is your neighbor. So love everybody. That's the... Uh, that's a traditional interpretation, and certainly there is truth to that. Um, the whole irony of the thing is that it's the Samaritan who helps out the half-dead stranger because the Samaritans were considered to be infidels, right, enemies of God, and the lawyer being Jewish would never expect a lowly Samaritan to help out the stranger and to love his neighbor the way the Jewish man and woman should. Right? My goodness, this is like this boundary-busting parable that Jesus is telling, right? This is a story that really pushes people, very surprising to people. Okay, so there's that in there, good, but there's something else to consider that unfortunately we tend to miss, and that's what I want to focus on uh, with you now, and the key to it all comes in that last question that Jesus asked the lawyer. It's in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? Now, the question is really important because it's getting at the whole point uh, of the parable, which, of course, was a response to the question that the lawyer asked Jesus back in verse 29. And who is my neighbor? That's the question that Jesus answers with a parable. The lawyer thinks he's got it figured out, right? That he takes care of his friends and his family and, he, and whatnot, and he gives money, etc. And he wants a pat on the back for it. And Jesus, instead of answering that question directly, he gives a parable. And here's the genius of it all. With that parable, he reverses the lawyer's question. In fact, he rejects the question outright. He doesn't answer it. In fact, with the parable, what Jesus is saying is that you don't even know what question to ask. It's not who is your neighbor, Mr. Lawyer. It's what does it mean for you to be a neighbor. That's the question that Jesus wants the person to ask. That's the whole point of the parable. Jesus is describing what the Samaritan did to warrant being called a neighbor. That was the point to the final question. That's what he's getting at. Verse 36, again. Uh, which of these three was a neighbor? A better, uh, a better translation would be, which of these three proved himself to be a neighbor? Or which of these three seemed uh, to be a neighbor? 
it's not so much, it's, there's a big difference here, is it's not so much as recognizing a neighbor, who the neighbor is or who you're supposed to love. That shouldn't be, even be a question for Jesus. You're supposed to love everybody. Love is not bounded. But the deeper current to it all is what does it mean for us to become a neighbor to others? How do we love, not who? That's the question that he's after. That's the deeper thing that, the, uh, that Jesus wants the lawyers and us to see, right? So who proved himself to be a neighbor? How do you know who was a neighbor? In verse 37, it's the person who practiced mercy. Mr. Lawyer, it's the one you're taught to hate. That's the guy who got it right. So go and do likewise. Go emulate him. And so what did he do that was so wonderful and worthy of all this emulation? What is he supposed to go and do? The Samaritan crossed over the road and entered into the world of the half-dead stranger. That's what it means to become a neighbor. In verses 34 and 35, he talks about what that means. He cleaned him. He bandaged him. He gave him his donkey to ride and walked alongside him to the inn. He put him up for the night. He made sure to check in on him. This parable is about human connection. It's about human relationships. And through that, they became strangers no more. You see, in talking about what it means to be a neighbor, the parable isn't describing like a transaction. Often an act of service, as well-meaning um, as it may be, often amounts to nothing more than a handout, right? An easy and impersonal exchange. Doesn't really cost you much. You can keep other people at a distance. Your hands don't have to get messy. What happens then? People that you're serving just remain an object and not a human being to relate to. Not so with mercy. No, no, no. Mercy is highly relational and intentional and intimate. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew, Hebrew language is wonderful because it uses these uh, parts of the body to connect or to, to describe human emotion. And in Hebrew, um, the word for mercy is rakam. And it comes from the same root of the, of the, word, the Hebrew word womb, W-O-M-B. So it's interesting that in Hebrew, the two words mercy and womb have this connection. And the connection is that the womb is a place where the vulnerable are cared for. It's a place where they're nurtured. It's a place where intimate things are shared. Blood is shared for crying out loud. You can't get any more intimate than that. The womb is a place of communion. It's a place of people coming together. It's a place of mercy. So practicing mercy, like the Samaritan did, is about letting somebody else inside of you, letting someone else affect you, crossing over into their world and allowing that world to penetrate your own. So that person is brought into you and you're brought into them. And of course, Jesus epitomized identifying um, with this so well, didn't he? He crossed over into our world, this world of the half-dead stranger. He walked with us and loved us and wept with us. Salvation isn't a transaction, it's a relationship. That's what it means to be a good neighbor. That's what it means to be a good Samaritan. And so through him, God and humanity are strangers no more.
So why is City Dive about stories and not service? Because hearing stories, taking a listening and a learning posture is the crucial first step to truly crossing over into another person's world and allowing that, per- that other world to come into your own. Stories have this way of humanizing the other person. You know? They help us to see past our uh, conscious and unconscious biases, our prejudging of other people. Oh, that person probably deserves where they're at because of, you don't know that. Hearing stories, it pushes against all the inertia in our lives that say, oh, I just wanna do my own thing, right? Like I really care for, you know, I'm sorry for the guy, but I'm kinda busy. I think that's what was going on in the priest and the Levite's mind as they walked past the man on the side of the road. But stories, what they do is they help us to see, see the person in all of their truth. We see a human being and not an object. We see the struggle and the pain in their lives. And we start to identify with that pain in their lives. And we make connections with their struggle and our struggle and their pain and our pain, even if our pain isn't the equivalent. That's what connects us at the deepest fundamental level of our humanity. It's that, it's that. Seeing the truth in somebody. It draws us into their world. Remember that um, all three men saw the half-dead stranger lying there on on the road, but only one saw with compassion. Compassion literally meaning to suffer with. The Samaritan truly saw the man, and he was drawn into his world. And what stories can do is be a real powerful relational stimulus that can draw us in and help us to see with compassion too and move us to greater acts of love and not just this or that act of service that's convenient for us or serving somebody else on our own terms, but it's really to understand the person for who they are and what they truly need and to enter into their lives. That's what it means to be a good Samaritan. Um, And stories are a really powerful way to draw us in. There was a, uh, there's a video posted on YouTube a few years ago that I think gets at this pretty well. It's an interview with a man named Ronald Davis, who was homeless at the time. And in it, he talks about the realities of his life as a homeless person um, and how he experiences the world. And in the interview, he reveals what he sees, like the interview reveals what he sees and what he experiences and what he feels probably doesn't enter into the mind of people as they walk past him on the street. Let's take a look. My name is Ronald Davis. I've been on the street for about a year and a half now. Well, I come from the suburbs. It's life, you know, which is, 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 is rough. And uh, I mean, I didn't slept in the lower wagon. I didn't slept on the bridges. I didn't slept in the, the little cardboard boxes and stuff, you know, just surviving. Especially in the wintertime is the hardest time. And like, uh, I go to a few lot of applications for a job and stuff. They look at me, you know, I'm not looking presentable. And then they, well, we'll call you, leave a number. But how can I leave a number when I don't have a phone? So I, it's just a struggle out there. You know, I just, you know, from day to day, people, uh, I come out here and panhandle with my cup right here at the Metro train station. People come off bringing me sandwiches and stuff like this here. And uh, I start out in my morning about 6 o'clock. You know, sometimes I don't even have enough 
to go to the flop house. You know, sometimes the flop house is a cheap place and they number 16 bucks for 24 hours right over there on Clark and Van Buren. And uh, a lot of times I don't have enough money for that, so I had to end up sleeping in the park or on one of these benches downtown or something like this. And then the security guards come and run you off about 5 or 6 in the morning. So by 6 o'clock I started panhandling and trying to survive. And uh, like I said before, some days I don't even have enough to get around, so I just sleep on the street. But I depend on the people that's coming off the train because most of them I give them respect. You know, most of them like me. They come out and give me clothes and food and stuff like this here, so I survive, give me a few bucks and everything, and I add it up at the end of the day and get me a little room for the night. And whenever I'm not fortunate enough to get the room, I go sleep in the street wherever I can. It's really humiliating to be shaking a cup 24 hours a day and people just look at you like you're some kind of little bomb, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I have had people to walk past me and say, get a job, bomb. And I said, wait a minute, I'm not a bomb, I'm a human being. And it's, and it's hard. But after the end of the day, when, when people go home and everybody get on the message train, and they might, and then I just, feel so bad that I can't be going on, you know? I mean, I'm sorry. But uh, it's really emotional because I'm really trying to get myself together and get off this trip, you know? And I don't care what it's doing. If I can get a job and through this humility, you know, I mean, you just lose all your humility when you're sick and a cook begging. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, you know, I mean, you know, you can look at a person and tell if they, give you respect tonight, you know what I mean? A lot of people look at you like you're just a, a piece of crumb, you know? I had one guy walk past me and talk about me so bad, and then I just looked at him. I said, God bless you, sir. He walked past and went, went down the street, come right back. And he said, you know what, man, I had a bad day. He said, I'm sorry for even calling you that. He said, because I know you're a human being. He said, would you accept my part? I said, part of the acceptance. He went in his pocket and gave me 30 bucks and said, go get you a room and get you something to eat. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, no matter what people think about me, I know I'm a human person. And just because I'm down on my luck, don't give nobody no excuse to call me no ball. Because I'm not. Well, this, uh, this video went viral almost immediately. Two million, uh, two, million, two million views in a week or two. It's very emotional, right? It's emotional. There's that part in there where you hear him say, I'm a human being and not a bum. I mean, he is talking about his fundamental dignity as a human being. And he's saying that he's not an object of people's ridicule, disgust. And it just hits you. You know, to know that people look at him that way and say those things directly to his face, he doesn't want to be in that situation. He doesn't want to be shaking a cup. And you know that there's just something fundamentally wrong when he can't have a home. Even a four-year-old knows that. And just, uh, just hearing his story makes him come alive to you as a human being. Doesn't it? 
You can't listen to that story and be indifferent to his suffering. His own humanity, right, it confronts you. And you want to respond, not out of guilt, hopefully, but out of a desire to come to the aid of a brother and a fellow human being. That's the power of a story. You want to do something about it, right? And a lot of people did. And this is where the story of Ronald Davis gets a little complicated because many people did come to his aid. In fact, um, almost immediately there was a crowdsourcing fundraiser to get him some money and get him back on his feet. Raised over $10,000. Got him a new phone. But several years later, guess what? Ronald's still homeless. Why? Turns out he only got $200 of the 10000 And his phone got turned off. Can't pay the phone bill when you don't have a job, right? No one helped him with that. Apparently someone ran off with the money. Crushed his spirit. Crushed his belief in humanity. And look, there have been other fundraisers um, over time. Money that is raised, not $10,000, but money has been raised for, for him. But he's still homeless. The way people responded to Ronald Davis is a classic example of when helping hurts or when good intentions have bad consequences. And this gets back to the deeper point of the parable. Being a neighbor to somebody cuts way deeper than merely raising money for them. Yes, I understand. Sometimes money is needed. I understand that. But what he really needs is someone to be his friend, for someone to stand with him, for someone to invest in him, for someone to give him some time and energy and resources, not just a handout, to call out the dignity and the goodness that's inside of him by standing with him, not just giving him some money and walking away. It takes making space for someone in your life. It ta- that's what it means to cross over the road and enter into the world of the half-dead stranger. That's mercy. You see, the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us that it's not uh, who we pass on our journey that matters. It's whose journey do we put ourselves in. That's the fundamental question. That's how we become a neighbor, as Jesus taught. And he lived that way. He was a neighbor par excellence. But we have to be willing to make room. We have to be willing to be interrupted and um, for more than just an afternoon, actually. Right? So when we talk about City Dive, it's really important to think about it, not in terms of a one-day event, but as an entry point into someone else's journey. Stories are an entry point, but they're not the whole thing. They're a good start. And that's why I think Sacred Heart is such a good organization for us to partner with, because as you'll hear, everything they do is centered on affirming dignity and development, working with people over the long run, Even with their food pantry, which is an emergency service, um, even with that, they talk about affirming people's dignity. Um, They don't just give people a bag of groceries and tell them to go on their merry way. They welcome people into their space. They allow them to take their time and pick out the things that they want, food that makes sense for them culturally. What they found is that not many Latinos like Brussels sprouts, right? So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to give them a bag of Brussels sprouts. Like, what am I going to do with this thing? Um, on the sur- you know what, on the surface, it's a subtle difference, but it goes a long way. It really does. So 
City Dive. You know, I, I really do hope that you can come to at least part of it. Good things are happening in San Jose. They really are. There are resources for people like uh, Ronald Davis. And the invitation is for you to join just by taking a small step to becoming a neighbor, towards seeing with compassion, towards entering into somebody else's journey. Um, you know, it's easy to guilt people into service. That's not what this is about. Compassion is different. Compassion is an act of love, not, a, not an act of guilt. And so my hope is that with City Dive, it inspires you to start seeing with compassion and not guilt. That's not what this is about. Nobody needs that. Not helpful. So, as uh, we wrap up tonight, I want to have some time for you to respond a little bit uh, to this. Um, Because in my seven years at Highway, working on staff here, what I've seen time and time again is that it's easy to get people inspired uh, to become a neighbor. Like intuitively, we know that it's good and right. Um, But inevitably, folks get stuck. We get stuck and nothing happens. And why is that? Well, it's easy to get stuck um, because it's scary. It means that we have to take a leap. Uh, It feels risky because it means that we need to be vulnerable, right? We're entering into a world that's not necessarily our own. And it can feel overwhelming because we're too busy, there's too many things to do, we don't know what it will cost us. This, by far, is the number one thing that I see. All of these, and they're all legitimate. You know, this sense that, yes, crossing over the road is a good thing in principle, but entering into someone else's journey, all that stuff, man, that's hard in real life. And it is. It is. Um, So how can we move past a place of getting stuck or feeling guilty towards grace that opens us up to real compassion and mercy? How do we do that? Um, Well, one way I've found that's really powerful is to talk about it, to share our feelings about it. Um, It lets us know that we're not alone and that it's okay that we feel this way. Uh, And we ask God to help us with it because in the end, you can't manufacture mercy or compassion. In the end, it's it's a work of the spirit. It really is. We can open ourselves up to it, but it's a work of the spirit in the end. We need to ask God for, uh, for help with this. So as we, um, as we wrap up this evening, we're going to have some time for response. And um, in your bulletin, there is a blank index card. And as the band plays, they're going to come up now. There's going to be a question that comes up on the screen. And you'll have a few minutes to think about it. And it has to do with feeling stuck. What's the thing that stands in the way of becoming a neighbor? Um, What's the thing that's coming up for you? You may have been listening to this and all this stuff is bubbling up already anyway. And um, there's also gonna be a song here that they're gonna play with some lyrics here. And the lyrics of the song may help you as you think about this. And it has to do with how ultimately we're nobody's savior. I wanna be clear about that. All this, we're nobody's savior. That's God's work. And we can act compassionately, yes. We can act mercifully. But the source of love And the saving grace, that ultimately comes from God, right? In the end, what connects us, the poor and the comfortable, the powerful and the powerless, all of us, 
two, you know, two stories in the valley here, is that we're all broken and we're all hurting and we're all in need of each other and we're all in need of God, all of us. And we'll all come together one day and sing hallelujah. Because there is a God that cares and loves for us. And there is a God with saving grace and power at work in this world. So as you think about this, um, write your reflection down. When the song is over, just go ahead and pass them to the middle here and up front, and then we'll collect them. And then Stephanie is going to come up here, and she'll read a few of them out. Right? So you don't have to put your name on it or anything. It'll be anonymous. But it's a really powerful thing to hear the, the collective voice, what's going on in our community. And then she'll offer a, a prayer for us.